Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. What's up, guys? What's up, guys? This is this is Talking With on, on Talking Tactics. <laughs> uh, I've got the homie Musa Okwaga here with me. How you doing, bro? Very well, thanks. Very well, Daniel. How are you doing? You right? right? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. So we start all of these interviews the same way. Who do you support? Manchester United. And which country or countries do you have loyalty to? Uh, <laughs> in these in these nationalist times, I'm a I'm a global citizen. I'm a global citizen. <laughs> so 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 if a World Cup comes up, there's no country, or if an Afcon perhaps comes up, there's no country where you're like. I prefer they win. Uh, only for narrative, only for the sake of narrative. So, for example, obviously, I'm from the UK, I'm from England, but if England struggle in the tournament, if they go out, then I root for another country. I'll just root for whoever has the best narrative. So, AFCON, I was rooting for Senegal just because I think they needed that win to seal their legacy. Um, and it's going to be weird because at this World Cup, because I just don't like the idea that it's being hosted there for a variety of reasons. Um, I, I think I'm rooting almost for individual players. So I'm rooting big time for Gabriel Jesus at Arsenal. So yeah, like it's uh, it's complex. It's complex. <laughs> I feel like these, these, these conversations, because the, the, the people I've interviewed so far mm. have been African, but also diasporic. There's been... Yeah. Like Carl, obviously Ghana, England, Tosin, yeah. Nigeria, Zita. Like, there's a whole bunch of people who are who are split. Like, I'm yeah, split. but also you're choosing you're choosing violence. So that's also the point. It's something else. But you're choosing, <laughs> let's not. Uh, you're not objective. You're you're choosing violence. But no, I re I respect it. I respect it. Those are the types of things that interest me because I'm a I'm a person who's split. So I w I'm born in Canada. Mm. I live in the United States, and I can never right. support the United States in anything. In fact, I actively root against them. And I'm Ugandan, so there's that. If, if someone wow, asks okay. me... Wow, this just got more interesting. Okay, okay. So okay. if someone asks me, who do yeah. I support? It's Uganda. But then there's like that... Mm. It's bold, it's bold. <laughs> you're you're obviously that. playing You're playing to your base here. You're, you're pandering to the diaspora. And I respect it. No, yes. yes, yes. <laughs> there, 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 there must be pandering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I get it, I get it. Another, an, another build-up question that we always have here. 
Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew well, that almost no one will have heard of the area I grew up. I grew up <laughs> just outside London in a place called uh, West Drayton. In fact, where are you from? Where, what, what town are you from? I was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Right. I currently live in Greensboro, North Carolina. Right. So you're familiar with towns that people don't necessarily know immediately beyond the borders of your country, right? So West Drayton sure. is like, it's not a place people know. But I grew up there. I was born there, grew up there, um, was in the UK till the age of 34. And now I live in Germany, uh, where I've been for the last eight years. So, yeah. Cool. Cool. That was my next question. Where do you live now? So I, I always get those out the way. Berlin. It's an yes, interesting Berlin, move. Yeah. It's an interesting yes. move. Absolutely. The heart of Europe. Loving it. <laughs> you do, So you prefer Berlin to London or does each have its own idiosyncratic yeah, you know, and both? Yeah, at this point in my life, I prefer Berlin. I could not have handled Berlin, I say, in my early 20s because Berlin is a city where you can get lost very fast. And I know you can get lost in London, yes, but like there is a certain... Berlin has a hedonistic streak, which if you're not on top of like your business, it can just like tow you under, which is <laughs> for some people, it's a, that's a preferable thing. But I think building a career in my early twenties, I think Berlin would not have been a good place to do it. Whereas now that I live there and what I do is established, I can enjoy all of it while keeping it in perspective. So yeah, um, I love it. It's perfect. And another foundational question, and this is the last of the ones, mm. the extent to your playing career. So how how far did you go either in school in college university how far did you go solid amateur footballer so played many many games uh 11 aside primarily i was playing until three and a half years ago with a really good team actually in berlin just playing as a kind of a striker that came on i was like the fourth or fifth choice striker by the time i stopped um so i played as a striker uh mostly a couple of years i played defensive midfield wildly enough played all across the forward line at one point um, and I was playing 11 aside football for about 30 years, really. And kind of like Sunday League, you know, those listening to this podcast, New Camp particular, so basically like Sunday League in uh, Middlesex area, just outside London, in London itself, and also in Oxfordshire when I was up at uni. So yeah, like a good standard of Sunday League, I would say. But yeah, very much an amateur footballer. Mm, okay. So what made you pick Manchester United of all clubs? My mother was there at university. So she came from uganda as a refugee in the mid 1970s and she had a choice of medical schools and her medical school ended up being the university of manchester so that was just her team so from 1970 this is tommy doherty era like 74 75 i think it was tommy doherty at manchester united that's when she became a fan and i kind of just inherited it from her interesting so a lot of the stories we've had people either inherit a club from their father or yeah. pick or pick a club against their father in spite so mm. <laughs> I had one guy who his his father was a Liverpool fan. So he decided United just because I don't know, just to be aggro. So just, I haven't heard <laughs> I haven't heard the I've taken a club from my mother angle, but that's really interesting. So so well, your mother is fair, into football. She is into football. To be fair to her though as well, I did have to kind of develop my own attachment. So mm -hmm. that was the club that she talked about the most. But still, the game that really sold me on United was the eighty five um, FA Cup final when they beat Everton one nil the Norman Whiteside goal. So that was kind of, she was already a fan, but I think what solidified it was like that, that experience because United actually at that point were kind of, they were a cup team. They weren't really a league team. They played quite flashy football, but they never quite sustained a league campaign. Um, consistent. They were really good under Ron Atkinson for a few, I think a few matches and maybe even one season, but generally speaking, they were like more of a cup side at that point. 
but yeah, the fun came later. So another thing I've picked up from talking to people in, in England, London specifically, and since you're from around that area, maybe not specifically, but mm. Man- Manchester United fans from the South tend to have bigger beef with Arsenal fans than Liverpool fans. So I'm curious, what is your, who's, who's, who's the biggest rival for United for you? Is Listen, it my only competitor is myself. I float above the fray. I don't indulge. <laughs> I don't, I don't. People try, they try, they try to come at me, but I'm like, listen, I'm just, it sounds a bit weird, but I'm a bit like, with my football club, I'm a bit like a um, a sprinter. I just care about my times. And if my times are low, then no one else matters. And I like, I, I, like I suppose that. with football, I just, look, I just love, I love watching football being played well. Mm. And I, people always, I go on the Arsenal podcast, the Arsecast with um, Andrew Mag and, and we joke about this, but I often say like, may the best team win. And I, he, he sometimes says like, he doesn't share that sentiment because it's just like, <laughs> we're going to beat you regardless. But I, I have always seen that approach to football. Like if, if we get beaten, whether I'm playing, whether it's my team playing and the other team's better, I don't have it. I've never really had a problem with that. Mm. Um, <laughs> which is maybe why I've not been more successful in my life. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that is, that's actually generally how I see football. You see, like I'm petty. <laughs> so like there's a part of me that I still okay I hate saying this Chelsea okay that's 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 the team that 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 they say I support um <laughs> you support Chelsea I mean Musa don't 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 swear at me bro I'm not like, judging because that's a chaotic you're having a very chaotic time at the moment Chelsea very chaotic mm, but it's but, never dull is it yeah, it's never dull at Chelsea it, it's thing. never dull it, again all these conversations and whenever I tell people who I support there's like a piece of me that's like but you don't really because of like, I, I didn't know who they were when I picked my team. So now that I know who they are and I have to look myself in the mirror, it's kind of like, I don't like what I see here, but I'm attached to Chelsea. But either way. There's variety within the Chelsea fandom. Like, you know, you've also got the Chelsea fans who basically own the, may own the pitch. So they've mm-hmm. stopped Abramovich making the changes he wanted to make because they believe in the stewardship of the club. So there's, and there's also the Chelsea fans who came because of the massive amount of African players they had. So there's that attachment. There's actually like a sense in which Chelsea at one point with United, with a Chelsea and Arsenal were the natural destination for a lot of African fans to go to just because they had so many African players at mm-hmm. one point. That makes sense. So actually, and then people joke and they have banter. Look, here's the thing. Being petty is part of being a football fan. I'm not about, I'm not completely above pettiness. There are certain things. I won't always name names in this podcast, but there are certain individuals and certain clubs that make me laugh now and again, that I will share some DMs and be like, <laughs> but like, listen, that's my petty is normally not public. It's normally not public. <laughs> petty is not public. Sometimes. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's hard to avoid pettiness. Just of in course, general. Yeah, of course, but yeah, of course, of course. so if, if we speed up the timeline a bit, yeah. At what point, do you realize that the United of Ferguson's days are over? So like if we go 2013. Great oh, great question. When when can you pinpoint that this isn't the same thing? Wow, such a great question. Do you know, um, I, like, not that sounds like a bit cheesy, but yeah, that's such a great question. Do you know what? I think it was maybe, it happened very fast. It may even be, so it obviously it began with the David Moyes tenure. Because when he got appointed, I was like, this is already like David Moyes tried so hard to reduce the aura of United to talk the job down. The bids that he made for Leighton Baines and Mauro and Fellaini, that first transfer window, I was like, wow, this club is not, the infrastructure is not what it was. But I think the real turning point for me was actually Louis van Gaal, because when Louis van Gaal's project didn't work, I was like, oh, it's not coming back. 
that I think was the first moment, you know, because United were actually really good until about February. They beat um, City 4-2 in the derby. They were brilliant. They beat Spurs. They looked, they were playing some incredible football. They beat Liverpool 2-1 at Anfield, one of the best performances at Anfield I've seen in years. Uh, Matter and Fellaini were outstanding. And I just thought, my goodness, like Van Gaal is coaching so well. But when that experiment failed, that's when I kind of have a feeling, you know what, actually, we're in for a few tough years. Mm. And the worst thing about the United tragedy is that it was all avoidable, right? It was all completely avoidable. Anyway, here we are. I think that Sir Alex Ferguson had a lot more leverage to stop the Glazers being owners. I think he had a lot more leverage. I think if he'd walked away, because he was such a guarantee, he was a cheat code basically, right? And if you want to come to a club and basically load them up with all that debt, you need a manager who's a cheat code. I don't know if the Glazers come in, if Ferguson says, if you come in, I walk. I'm not Mm. sure that happens. Also, Ferguson fell out with those two Irish owners. People don't talk so much about that now, but in 2005, basically, the club was only sold or they only wanted to sell up because Ferguson fell out with two of the biggest shareholders of United and they walked away because they just weren't going to win the PR war with him because he sued them over a horse he had no rights to the um, the proceeds of. <laughs> Rock of Gibraltar, right. Like, Sir Alex Ferguson basically like... Are you saying the history of your club is ruined because of a horse? Yeah, a racehorse, basically. <laughs> the ego, yeah. That's it, a racehorse. And people won't believe it, but the ego... And they just, you know, the owners walked and they were like, well, they sold up and that was it. That's funny. <laughs> it's what it, it is actually. Do you know what? In the context of like classical history and like the fall of empires, it is actually hilarious. Oh, it's Trojan awful. And it's hilarious. Oh, it's wow. hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what in your opinion needs to happen for United to get back? Is it as simple as remove the Glazers? Where do you get owners that can afford United that people are happy with? Well, that's a huge part of it. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think actually a huge part is, but then I think only after you remove the owners, you sell up and then it's another five years. Let's say the owners sell up now. If you look at the level that City are at, that like Liverpool are at, it's five years from today that United are back, getting back to a level where they're consistently dangerous. So 15 years at least before you win a league. That's that's nasty. Well, un- un- unless unless you like appoint Conte, which they should have done. But then again, Conte might have just like walked out the moment he was appointed. Mm. Um, unless you're Conte, he's basically like I call I call I call Conte the football whisperer because he has the ability to like charm elite football from anybody, even those who seem like they're past it. But yeah, um, unless you're point Conte, it's basically like years in the wilderness. To to the Glazers' point, and I remember mm. on the on the podcast with Carl yesterday, I was going to bring this up, but it just it slipped my mind. How how do you go about eliminating? The Glazers, not on some like deep level. Oh my God, John Wick, like John Wick. I'm going to the high <laughs> re- re- Removing the Glazers from their position. Mm. Before the game, there, there were protests. And yeah. I saw the protests and in the crowd, there were people with the new kit. And I'm like, that's odd. And then they're mm. walking into the stadium, probably with the season ticket. I'm like, that's yeah. doubly odd. How yeah. do you remove the Glazers when even the people who want him out or them out are still tied to the club on like a financial level, which in my mind would be the most, the primary way of removing them. Because it's like, it's like being a Roman Catholic and wanting to get rid of the Pope. This is the thing you have to understand. Like people's attachment is so deep to this football is their escapism. There's people whose entire week, entire month, entire year, their happiness revolves around their connection with their club. And that is not a thing that money can replace or the absence of it. Even, you know, staying away from Old Trafford 
is physically painful for a lot of people because they're thinking, look, yes, I know it's an awful owner, but it's my club. And how can an owner come between me and attending the club that I love, the stadium that I love, and, you know, seeing my mates every week? And like, you know what I mean? It takes, it takes a lot of strength to pull yourself away from something that you've loved for so long. And also, honestly, has given you joy for so long. You know what I mean? Like, how mm. do you pull yourself away from that? Now, I've got friends who've quietly quit supporting United, who have been lifelong United fans, just because they've been disillusioned with so much of the recent stuff around the club, not just the ownership, but other stuff off the field as well. And it's a hard thing to pull yourself away from, I would say. Very hard. Going to football adds value to your life. Or at least that's right. how it that at least that's how it could be perceived. So telling someone don't go to United is literally mm. telling them, well, I hate the word literally. It's like telling them, cut your arm off. Like, why why would I do that? I can't do that. It's not something of which I'm physically capable. Understanding the spiritual place that football occupies in people's lives. Yes. Which sounds ridiculous to a lot of people who aren't football fans, but it is a thing. It's a factor. It's there, you know? It's just odd when you see old Trafford filled to the brim. I feel like you're hustling backwards, but I am sympathetic to what football means to people on some deeper level. You look at Newcastle, Newcastle's ownership, their new ownership, I've criticized at various points the new ownership for various reasons. And also, I can also acknowledge that after years and years of Mike Ashley, this is like receiving a liter of the freshest mountain water after hours of hours of thirst. That's what it's like for some people. Like they're just like, you know what? I know the owners are terrible. And also don't make me think about it because what we had before was so terrible mm. on a personal level. And I don't like that that is the outcome. I don't even like that necessary, that necessary conclusion. At the same time, I understand it. Yes. I understand yeah. it. So what, what were your first impressions of Eric Ten Hag? Very good, actually. Um, ah. Very good. But also he doesn't have the infrastructure. And this is the problem he's going to face now. There's a really... When you say first impressions, I would say first impressions, there was the preseason, which, you know, United were impressive. Then there was the start of the Premier League season, which is a different impression. And I thought he came out very honest when he said that he was concerned by the confidence drop or he noticed the confidence drop in his players. And that's not him throwing his players under the bus. I think that playing for Manchester United for the most part is an anxiety inducing exercise because everyone knows it sounds awful to say this. Playing for United right now must be a bit like being a new superhero in the Marvel Phase 4, where you have to follow all of those great Marvel superheroes, right? You have to follow Tony Stark, and everyone's expecting the, the Marvel of like Infinity War and Endgame, but it's gone. It's not there anymore. You have to like build something new, a new legacy. And there's a lot of people playing for United now who are aware they're being compared to Keane, Scholes, Beckham, and they're just not in the class of those people. But you've got 70,000 fans waiting in the crowd expecting that level of excellence. And it's not going to come back, not for years. And the pressure is astonishing. <laughs> In fact, does that make sense? The pressure is astonishing. Mm -hmm. For me, Ten Hag, just to sort of quickly round off the point, yeah. Ten Hag, I suppose the problem there then is that like, I think he is becoming aware of how that pressure weighs on his players. And to his credit, he's trying to help them play with freedom and help them make their own legacy. You see, that's an interesting idea that the 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 institutional memory, we could yep. say, of mm. fans lasts a really long time. Yep. The memory of players is transitory because mm. generations last five, six, seven years. 
So those players, do they really remember what Scrolls is like? What gigs do. was like? Of course what? they do. But fans for sure remember. Fans are there for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. That's the reason you come to United. You come because that's been sold to you. Like if, if United didn't have that legacy and that history, a lot fewer people would join it. And this is the problem United have, right? As time goes on and people start forgetting. You look at Newcastle right now. Newcastle, a very, very wealthy club, the wealthiest in the world right now because of the resources behind them, okay? But they cannot attract the caliber of player they want because they don't have the, the history, the legacy, the brand, not yet. If United keep losing their brand, they're going to start losing players to Newcastle because those two clubs are going in opposite directions. They just are. They just are. And this is a, this is a reality United have to face. Mm. So let's do word association. Do you, do you yeah. like word association? Well, I've got no choice, have I? Let's go for it. <laughs> and it's funny. Some of these things were written down beforehand. I didn't know what you were going to say, but, you know, I guessed. We're going to start with Glazers. Chaos. Cristiano. <sighs> That's enough. <laughs> Ferguson. Legendary. Rashford. Oh, um, despondent. Beckham. Elite. Underrated. Underrated, actually. Underrated. Better. Underrated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> underrated. Half hope. I'm sorry, bro. Um, Paul Pogba. Oh, oh, my goodness. This is so complex. Paul Pogba. <laughs> Paul Pogba. Paul Pogba. Underachieved. I love the torture of word association, especially for yeah. people who know a lot of words. Cantona. King. Okay. So when when was your first World Cup? 19. Ah, oh, the first World Cup I was allowed to watch. Sorry, I'm still bitter about this. 1990. Because when it was World Cup 1986, I was not allowed to stay up late to watch the World Cup in Mexico. Ooh. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm still, yeah, bitter about it. So 1990 was the first World Cup that I watched. Astonishing in Italy. Uh, not many goals per game, but lots of drama. Then I actually attended the 1994 World Cup. I went to two matches. I went to two games at the Cotton Bowl mm -hmm. in Dallas, I think. Sweden, Saudi Arabia. Sweden won 3-1. And then I went to watch the World Cup quarterfinal. I know, it's wild. Um, World Cup quarterfinal, Brazil, Holland, 3-2. Mm. I know, unbelievable game. Yeah, both unbelievable games, actually. I tend to find people's attraction to football is heavily correlated with the World Cup. So is that what first injected you with the bug even before your mother? No, no, no. United? I was obsessed. I was obsessed. Look, the obsession with football. So I went to a, a school called Marish. Marish, uh, a school in the Thames Valley, which is a kind of extended suburb of London. And Marish, we were obsessed with football. And we used to play with these footballs they were actually handballs so those hand those balls that bounce everywhere like the the, the rock and roll handballs mm -hmm. and we played with them because they were the most durable balls to play with on the hard concrete surface we played on so we were obsessed we play every lunchtime for a full hour to the point where sometimes we'd skip lunch and we'd get home with a pack lunches not eaten because we played football all through lunch so the obsession came first of all with playing yeah. I played for a really terrible team called Golden Eagles. Shout out to them. They were awful. Our coach, Steve, was a lovely man. And Golden Eagles, it was the B team. The under-10 B team comprised all the players who weren't good enough to play for other teams. So we lost one, one game 34-35-0 within an hour. And the ball only crossed the halfway line, I think, twice, like from kickoff. So, yeah, we were terrible. We were absolutely terrible. 
Um, but the love of football came from playing lots of games, losing lots of games, but just like always being around it. But yeah. Hmm. So in in prepping for this, I told Carl, like, I'm, I, I got to read at least one of the books that you. Oh, no, you didn't have to do that. Don't put yourself through that. So I can't. Oh, come on, bro. Like, it's they're, they're actually really good. So, but there's. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time. I, you are more than welcome. But in the end, it was all about love. Yeah, yeah. I can't read the last chapter. Too real. Because it's something I need to do and I plan to write about, like going back home. Mm. So I can't read it. I want to read it and I will read it eventually. But I Why? can't let your experience Real. touch right. mine. Because it's it hit like if 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 you went to Ghana or mm. South Africa or hell, Rwanda, I'd have yes. read it. But yeah, yeah, of course, I understand. You get yeah, I can't. Of course. But, yeah, yeah. but in, in, in the first part of the book, you, you mentioned that your grandfather managed the national team of Uganda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what yeah. memories of that do you have, if any? I don't have any memories of him doing that. So, okay, so his name was um, Julio Peter Abbey. So he was, you can actually find on Wikipedia, there's an entry. So he was, he managed the Uganda national team before, back in the 60s, I think it was. And then he was also head of the Ugandan FA for a single year hmm. in either 1972 or 1973. Um, and that was an era they were quite good in the end. They ended up going to the African Cup of Nations in the final they, of 1978 yeah. and losing to Ghana. Ghana. To yeah. In Ghana, right, right. So they had a decent side, actually. What I remember from my granddad in terms of his football ability or the coaching, he came to football training once. And actually, this is at the time when me and my team were getting a bit better and getting quite good. So we invite him to training and, you know, he's playing against like 11 year olds. Right. And he's like, Oh, like there's a granddad want to come over and take some penalties against us. And he's like five aside goals. And he was like, Oh yeah. So he kind of walks over and he always had this like impeccable, like snow white Adidas track. I don't know how granddads keep tracksuits that clean, like pristine <laughs> white Adidas trainers, pristine, like white tracks. It comes over and everyone's taking penalties and he stands up as our keeper. And our keeper is really quite good. He's the reason we didn't get thrashed by more. And I'll never forget, my granddad stands over the penalty spot in a five-a-side. So he's basically standing like, what, 12 yards from goal. And I kid you not, he hits three penalties, absolutely perfect, with no backlift, using just his laces and his hips. Didn't move his shoulders at all. Like just swiveled his hips and bang, 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 no backlift, nothing. And I remember thinking, this was like a 75-year-old man hitting the ball with the power. He hit the ball with the power I could not generate until I was about, I would say maybe... 15 like wow. he ripped it yeah and i was like oh that's the first time i understood that technique in football is not just about muscle strength it's about like all these other things so yeah that's the first time i'd watched and i was like oh my god like my granddad's actually a beast <laughs> he's like a superhero <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he showed you guys levels so the levels, is, yeah. was, was was this the same grandfather that you wrote about in one of them that was doing the 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 dictionary english language thing yes yeah, same guy. He was a he was also the headmaster of um a high school in the north of Uganda, Gulu High School. Mm. So yeah, he was like he was a yeah, he was um a headmaster, he was a coach, he was a teacher. Yeah, he did all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had um so did a full life. Did, in in the book there was one question there was a bunch of questions I had, but like did he ever finish the dictionary? I don't, you don't know? know if he did. I don't <laughs> it still it still exists. Like he wrote it all out. Mm -hmm. And different people have done dictionaries, but I think 
I think he might have done actually. There's no reason why he wouldn't have done. But then again, you know how dictionaries are an ongoing process. I think he'd done the bulk of it. I think it's fair to say he made the bulk of it. But yeah. I remember there was my dad was going to I don't know the YMCA and he met there's it's 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 a weird thing how Africans detect other Africans and they right. you they always meet. So I met this person from Southern Sudan or whatever it is, and this person printed out our language dictionary and my dad gave mm. it to me. So I'm I'm Iteso. The person oh. printed out the Atesso dictionary, gave it to my dad, and my dad gave it to me. I'm reading it, and I'm like, how do you go about doing this? Was it, it is it colonizers who wanted to make like who did this? And it must be, now that I think about it, someone like your grandfather who just sit down and just transcribe the dictionary. Not just not just um transcribed it, but codified it because there was um oral tradition until a couple of generations before my grandfather, everything was oral. Well, for a lot of people, it was oral. So my grandfather was like, let me start codifying this and get this all down. So he was part of a generation of people who were like, we need to start writing this down. Also, don't forget the north of Uganda was a place that was like, you know, they were like, they had to fight off colonizers. They had to fight off people from different borders, from the north, from the south, like all the rest of it. So there's an element of like trying to preserve culture before people come and wipe you out. Mm. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Now we transition a little bit from football. We'll come back. But yeah. what did what subjects did you study in university? I did a law degree at university, and then I qualified as a lawyer. And the thinking there was, I always wanted to be a writer, but in order to be a writer, I thought I need to have a fallback first. So I thought, what better than a law degree and a law qualification, just in case things hmm. don't work out, I can always go back into a corporate field. So is that is that decision of leaving law I, I i get that sense from from the writing is that something you've like you're at always peace with oh always it was always the plan mm. like it was always always the plan to leave um being a lawyer at some point i just thought that i would you know in my naive mind i thought i would leave it to greater security so i thought you know okay look i was maybe naive i was thinking let me qualify as a lawyer do my law during the week and then write at the weekend and then maybe put together a manuscript. And if I can sell a book, that will allow me some time to like move on to different career transition. But of course, when you work full-time as a lawyer and then write at your weekends with commitment, you just don't have energy for both. Mm. Like it's, it's actually not possible spiritually to do both. For some people, well, no, for some people it is. Shout out to those who've managed that. But for me, I just couldn't do it. I just wanted to be a writer too much as my main thing. And so I had to leave. What kind of lawyer were you? Corporate, legal, like... What, what what kind of law did you do? I was, <laughs> sorry, I'm only laughing because when I told my um, 
ex-girlfriend who's the dear friend when i told her what i was doing at uni she burst out um uh, as a career she burst out laughing i i said i was a construction engineering lawyer and she burst out laughing because she's like that's so far from who you are or where you want to be so yeah that's what, what i am. what is a construction what what kind of law is that is that like you know just project management so project managers project like management. so yeah so like let's say um well like stadium building for example so that a stadium is being built you will draw up the contracts around who mm. has to deliver what when who has to deliver the financing for the project who has to certify that it's finished all that stuff so yeah it's actually like if it's work that you enjoy it's really well paid and you get to travel really well and you get to enjoy like stuff being put up you get to see the world being constructed and you get to say oh i was a part of that which is like kind of cool actually but i could see why a person who really likes writing could easily leave that <laughs> yeah yeah as the, yeah because the lawyers don't use words with the same freedom that that writers do they just don't like being a lawyer is all about using words with an exceptional precision but not just a sexual precision with a prescribed meaning whereas so much of the fun of writing is the ambiguity or the kind of the way the language can be bent and shaped and lawyers right. are not really they're generally not here for that i did an english degree in mm. university and i feel like it was a good decision in some ways because mm. you kind of just you you get to study and right. I, I, ever recently i'm learning the difference between reading and studying there's a difference yeah. And be, having an English degree allowed me to study and ha learn how to write, how to construct arguments and, and this type of thing. Mm. But as you rightly deduced when you made your decision, there's not much to fall back on <laughs> once you do that, un 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 unless you want to become a teacher, which right. is why I feel like, you know, we always hear, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, those types of things. Um, do you know why that parents. is? It's because if you do like a degree like English, mm -hmm. When I look at my friends who did English degrees, I noticed something. I was like, these are all middle-class white people doing these degrees, like for the most part. Well, the, so the, what, let me just clarify that. The friends of mine who did English, history, and then went on to corporate careers, they were all like, oh, we'll do English, we'll do history, then we'll go and do something serious like banking later. But mm. those people all came from the kinds of backgrounds where you would have some contacts that would help you out. Like, it, I remember thinking, as a black guy doing a history degree or an English degree, if I don't get into like one of, let's say, 20 top unis, then me doing an English degree in the job market as a black guy puts me way further down the mm -hmm. pecking order. Whereas if I do a law degree at any one of 20 unis, a law degree from any one of 20, let's say 50 universities in the UK, is still a great degree in the job market. Yeah. Like because the thing, the, the bias against people of color in the job market is well documented. Like you have a, a foreign surname, you, you better have a surname, you better have a degree that like, mitigates that that sounds yeah. brutal but that's been my reality to the point where if i had not done a law degree i'm pretty sure there's a lot of places that would not have rented me a room i'm pretty sure when i turned up to rent from a lot of people especially in london the fact that i was a qualified lawyer meant made them go yeah this guy he's going to be good for the money yeah. as opposed to doing an english degree where they're like oh he's just wishy-washy even though it's the same person the same intellect but yeah. having the law degree has kind of been a shield for me my entire life, to be honest, even long after leaving the law. I was able to get away with it because my parents understood the limitations I had in other subjects. Mm. So <laughs> like we, we want Daniel to go to college or university, mm. I guess, for, 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 for purposes of clarity here. So so we want Daniel to go to university. Any subject is almost good enough, just as long as you 
do something. That's yeah. just something. My, now, my, my brother is the one, I think, he's younger than me. He was the one that got all the more of the pressure because he was, I don't know, he's just great with numbers. So he he, he did the engineering side of things. Yeah. For me, it was just like, just, just, just go to school, figure it out. So I was like, I'm pretty good with like talking, arguing, all that kind of stuff. So I'll just do English. But you're you're totally right about you you need protection in some ways. Yeah. Or, or maybe yeah. you don't need it, but it's good to have. Oh, you do need it. I think you well, I I, I haven't well I've look, I've got a Muslim first name and I'm a dark skinned black dude. <laughs> like you need you need some protection. You need some yeah, yeah. You need something. You need something extra, I would say. So yeah. So I want to talk to you about the economics of writing. And I don't mean mm. economics in a financial sense. I mean conciseness. When I read your books, a book and a half, book in two thirds, one and two thirds, your writing style is very concise and economic, I would say. And yeah, I, yeah. How, how, how do you, or how have you perfected your, your writing style? Because for me, it's really easy almost to just write or type everything that's in your head. Mm. But the, the science of whittling down sentences, mm. Two things have helped with that. First of all, Twitter's really helped mm. because you have to express yourself concisely all the time, right? Yeah. With real precision, because if you're not precise, people will come for you. And <laughs> which we both which we both know. And then also like people are busy. So if you want people to read something that you've written, you're competing with Netflix, Disney Plus, and other streaming services. You're competing with people's favorite music. You're competing with all these different media that didn't necessarily even exist when you were coming up as a writer. So in order to compete with those things when you're writing books, what are you gonna do? You're gonna write less and be precise because you've got less space to get your time across. Like for someone is more likely to read. If I write a 500 page book and a 100 page book, people are more likely to pick up the 100 page book. They're more likely to take it on the train with them, put it in their back pocket, put it in their bag, whatever. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm thinking. So I'm like, less is more, always less is more. So those two factors, they force, and also just like, just from reading and seeing what connects and seeing what's so shareable, my whole philosophy with writing has been keep it simple, but not basic, right? So mm. simple to the point where it's clear, but not to the point where it loses all meaning and content. How is the process of getting a book published then? Because I would assume that book publishers don't follow that idea of like a hundred is better than 500. I'm, they want words like 60,000, 40,000, however much it is. And you bring them a book that's maybe 20 or 30. Mm. How, how what, what is the struggle of trying to get people to understand like, no, there is a market for this. This is where the attention spans are going. It took a year. It took a year for um in the end to get published because people like it's too short. It's too short. Oh, it needs to be 50,000 words. It needs to be 70. I'm like, no, it's been said in that time. So I have struggled to get stuff published. It's been shorter. Mm. That was literally the key objection for a lot of people. Oh, it's it's too short. And I'm like, mm -hmm. what? Oh, oh, it's a... And I, yeah, so that's what I've had to deal with. But then I'm like, well, those are the books I'm writing. So if you don't like them, then unfortunately you have to find someone else. But thank goodness Rough Trade Books showed faith in it because everyone else literally was like, no, it's too short. Or... We're not sure what it is. Is it poetry? Is it prose? Is it memoir? And I was like, my goodness, like <laughs> it's just a book. This is when I found out that actually people were not that experimental. You get, oh, we're bold, we're with 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 heartbreaking. It's, no, actually, you're not. You're actually quite afraid to do something new. Hmm. Because this book actually, I'm not sound, I'm gonna sound arrogant, but like 
no one that's reviewed the book since it came out said it was too short. No one said that. So like now that it's out there, people are like, oh, we're reading it. So where was this fear coming from? It was coming from some people in publishing. Mm. So how do you manage the simplicity of writing? Mm. And when I mean the simplicity of writing, I mean you're sitting there at a computer putting words mm. together mm. and it's really easy to get distracted. <laughs> and, and, and at least for me, anyway, if I'm at the computer and I'm writing something, it's really mm. easy just to go check Twitter and, oh, oh, nah, like, I don't know, 20 minutes have passed or 30 minutes have passed. How do you manage the almost the banality of it? Uh, this is what works for me. It's not advice. It's just what works for me. So you can put stuff on your... Um on your laptop, which blocks websites. So I think the freedom app is pretty good. Mm. So it just stops like just absent mindedly just browsing whenever you want to. So <laughs> it basically like, puts the, yeah, so it puts a delay of a few seconds on each site when you open up, which is quite mm. good. The other thing that I do, the most practical sense is I start writing really early in the morning when everything's fresh in my mind. So I don't second guess myself. I don't doubt myself. So I will think about what I'm going to write the night before. So for example, let's say I'm going to write um, an article tomorrow about about climate or about um, which new player Juventus should buy. I will think about that the night before and I'll be like, I won't write it tonight. And tomorrow morning I'll wake up and first thing in the morning, I'll get like a black coffee and glass of tap water and just write for two hours. Tap water? Yeah, yeah, always hydrate. Got to hydrate all the time, man. We got good tap water here. <laughs> no, I'm just like, oh, the are, are, yeah, yeah. Tap water. Are you against yeah, yeah. bottled water because of what it does to the climate? No, no, whatever's to hand, man. So, but yeah, we oh, got okay. filter, yeah, filter water, yeah, filter water, okay. whatever bottle water, not knocking. So yeah, um, we have a, a black coffee and mm -hmm. um, a big bottle of glass of water and just write for two hours because that way my concentration is absolutely at level. Everything's distilled. And there's something about the way that my brain works is that if I think, if I think I'm going to write about Juventus the next day, my brain just kind of like mulls it over overnight. And then when I wake up in the morning, I'm ready to go. That is so serendipitous because Carl and I yesterday when we were on the podcast, there was there's this thing like if, if you give yourself a math problem and you can't figure it out and you go to sleep, mm. your brain works on the problem in the background. And then when you wake up, you can come up with solutions. So it's, right. it's weird it's, that yeah. you correlated that same thing with writing. And I never did it because I learned it oh. in a math class. You're onto something. Was <laughs> that's how I wrote. That's, that's exactly how I wrote. That's how I wrote this book so quick. Mm. That's how I wrote. I wrote um, in the end, it was all about love that's how I wrote uh, one of them back to back those books because I, I had that process, same process, like waking up, alarm going off at six, 6.20, I'm at my desk, write till 8.20, <sighs> might write till 9.30 maximum, then like take a break, write for another hour, and then like maybe another hour in the afternoon, then I'm done. Five great hours done by 3 p.m. Good. Yeah, 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 it's awesome. That makes sense. Yeah. So you are also in the podcasting space. So I wonder... Yes. Are you more comfortable talking, maybe with your lawyer background, it might make sense, or writing? Like, which which is which is more your happy place? Like the written word or the spoken word? I just, there's, for me, it's interchangeable. Mm, okay. It's genuinely interchangeable. Yeah, I love both. I love both. Um, writing will probably always be the first love because it's just where it made everything else possible. I love crafting something. And I think maybe, actually, now I think about it slightly more, writing because podcasting is... A relatively new career for me only a few mm. years but writing's been a thing that like from day one it's always been something i could see myself doing so yeah probably writing most of all but then but closely followed by speaking now i think closely mm. followed 
Yeah. So football journalism in particular, I'm always curious about this, about mm. just black African people who, who get into this. And mm. this is something I discovered with Carl almost, mm. is there's sometimes this inclination of mm. the powers that be to relegate black journalists to an extent. And then when something racial pops up, They'll mm. call you and be like, hey, there's a spot on Talk Sport. There's a spot on Sky Sports. Can yeah. you please come talk black for us and, yes. and, and tell us how bad we are? And then you're relegated again to your space. Can I, can I, say, can I say something? What's the, what's the language point. policy on this podcast? I mean, you can say what you want. Fuck those people. <laughs> Let's go. We're okay, so, now. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, okay, here's the thing. So we can't talk Champions League tactics or the flow of a game, all the fun stuff, all the stuff which doesn't get the backlash, they can talk about that. But when we want to do the fun stuff a lot of the time, it's not as changing now, the generation like below me, I would say, Carl, yourself, Mayo, Quadri, like, and there's, there's always been good people in football that've helped me, and I want to mention specifically, Philippe Auclair. Philippe okay. Auclair was amazing at helping to bring me in and help me out, Sheridan Bird, who's now doing, I think, TV, he's doing Italian TV for Juventus, actually, um, Andy Brassel, uh, these mm -hmm. people have always been huge supporters, huge supporters of my work. They've helped me at so many points. Like, you know, so Philippe brought me into the Football Writers Association and he was just someone who was always like in my corner. James Tyler uh, over at ESPN brought me in to write their work there. And more recently, obviously, you have people like Conan Evans um, at The Ringer and Chris Ryan. What I would also say is there is a large group of people in football that kind of don't think are relevant, or certainly in my generation, they didn't think what you were saying was relevant until it had a race thing attached. Or they were like, actually, we're already in the fun, the fun jobs. We can do those, but you can talk about race. <laughs> and a key reason I left the UK actually was because I was just fed up of being someone people came to when my expertise mm. was in other areas. Because my first two books about football barely mention race. One is about what it makes, what makes a great footballer. The other one's about what makes a great manager. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you the amount of times I can consulted. And those books are both, okay, I'll sound arrogant. Those books are both very well reviewed. And the number of times I got asked to write about uh, evaluating player characteristics. This is before this is before the stats era really took off in the UK. So a lot of it was based on the eye test. So in theory, I could have been asked a lot more than I was asked about player characteristics. Why is that important? Why is pressing important? All these things, right? Intensity, fitness levels, uh, vision, all of these things. And I got asked relatively rarely, very rarely about those aspects of a footballer's makeup. Mm -hmm. It was very, very often when it was race. And I started noticing this. I was like, do you know what, actually, this is so frustrating because I'm going to become a race commentator and all I really want to do is write about football. And yeah, talk about race now and again because it's relevant, but not be like the race guy. <laughs> yeah, it's and just, that's it's kind just of, like, yeah, 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 go ahead. No, go for it. That was, that was, that was happening with my political punditry. It was happening with my football writing. And I was like, you know what? Peace out. I'm done with this. So Berlin is better? Uh, yes, actually. Or, or is it just mo yeah. removing yourself removing from yourself because then, place? Yeah, it's a bit of both. I mean, my German's pretty good. I don't write in German, but my German's going to have to be comfortable there. But removing yourself, and what I realized was also, and I've said this a thousand times, like being out of that context and going and building a different life, and then all people see of you is your work. Because when you're not in the country, people take you for granted. Mm. So if you're in the UK, I think if you're, if you're always three, three tube stops away, it's easy to drag you into the studio to talk about something nonsensical, something ridiculous. If you're actually harder to get hold of, people have to be like, actually, you know what? Um, 
yeah, let me work a bit harder to work out what might fit. So now, like, I have a better life because people are like, actually, I think you'd be good for XYZ project. And I do talk about race. This is the thing. I still write about race now and again, but it's on my terms as opposed mm. to, oh, he's the race guy. Like, 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 race. like the yeah. only time you get an opportunity is when some white dude does something. And now I have to come and talk about something I don't and even want to talk about. A lot. And yeah. here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. Not everyone in football was like that. Not everyone was like that. But I will say this. It was a lot. It was a lot of people. And it was enough for me to be disillusioned with it. So I have two more questions and then a quick fire round. So here we sure, go. Yeah. How do you handle criticism, both constructive and destructive? Constructive, very, very well. Destructive, mm -hmm. I have no time for it. Destructive criticism, constructive criticism, often if someone says me something and it's quite scathing, people can sometimes be quite rude to me on Twitter, but if the person's really smart, I start reading their stuff. Not in a kind of passive aggressive way, but I start reading up about them, like in terms of what they say. No, no, but like I start reading. I don't want to like, because if someone sends you something really rude on Twitter and you start following them back immediately, they might think that's passive aggressive, like you're just trying to keep an eye on them. But what I'll often do is I'll be like, I'll wait a couple of weeks and then start following them on Twitter because I like that person taught me something. And they came at me in a very angry way, but the substance of what they said was really important. And I need that in my worldview. I need to have that, that challenge. So I do seek it out. You know, I read a lot of, I follow 3,000 accounts, I think, on Twitter, and a lot of them are like people I, I cannot stand or views that I find abhorrent, but I need to know what the discourse is, right? So I do that. Um, constructive criticism is pretty good, actually. I've got like uh, an amazing agent. One time she read a book of mine, and when the book wasn't good enough, she's like, this isn't right. And that was a, like a 120,000 word sci-fi novel. And she's like, no, it's not ready. It's not right. It's not good enough. And I accepted her reasoning on that immediately. So when she rates something of mine, I know it's good. She's got a very good radar. So constructive criticism, I can take it. Destructive criticism, uh, every now and again, most of the time, if I get some abuse, I will mute or block it. I like to mute it because if I mute it, they have to howl into the void. Uh, and think the mute it. function is so good. <laughs> it's delicious. But every now and again, uh. if someone comes at me with like a really spiteful comment, for example, some of the day said, oh my God, you've got nothing good to say about my club. I politely reply, replied and I said, oh, nothing good about your club. And I sent like three links to things, two articles and one podcast link where I praised the club. And I was like, there you go. All that hate for your club. And everyone saw it and they were like, whoa, that's brutal. I was like, no, like people come at you and call, by all means come at me for something I've said. Mm. But if I haven't said it, don't put words in my mouth because that goes nowhere good. So that's how I handled it. That's how I handled mm. it. Yeah. And what what does the future look like for you within the next five years? Is it more books? Are you diving deeper into podcasting? Are you getting into movies, music? Like what 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 does the next five years hold for you? Do you think um, more podcasts? Uh, more more podcasts. More books, <laughs> more books. More podcasts. I'd love to adapt um, some of the stuff that I've written for TV. Mm -hmm. I'd love to adapt some. Yeah, so I mean, the small screen, big screen, whatever the format is, limited TV series. Would love that. Um, one of them for sure could be maybe a, as part of something bigger I've, I've turned down everything so far. we've been offered stuff but i've turned down every deal so far for one of them because i don't want to be trapped in the adolescence of oh here's the writer's childhood because that kind of because that school is well known that I, I i attended the private school i went to because it's well known it's very easy to kind of become a oh here's a tv series of a little boy lost so I've mm -hmm. turned down everything so far on that. But if, if, if the right project comes up, I'm open to it. You just reminded me of something. 
and it's not mm. a quick fire question, but it is a, it's a structural writing question. Mm. And, and, and football writing taught me this where, you know, if you're writing an article about Cristiano Ronaldo, it gets repetitive right. to say Ronaldo, 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 Ronaldo. So then you find like, how old is he? Okay. So the 37 year old, the Portuguese international, you come up with yeah. different ways when you're writing a memoir where you can't necessarily use proper nouns and you have mm. to write he, him, he, him, he, him. Mm. How was that? Like, were you like cringing? Like, no, it's writing? easy. It's easy. It's easy. You treat it like dialogue when you're writing a movie. Mm. It's all dialogue. You never get tired of in dialogue when you're writing dialogue. You don't get tired of using the name for each thing. So just use it the same. Just be just be clean and actually don't get scared of repetition. If you look at like mm. uh, grime MCs or you look at the Migos, the Migos <laughs> repeat words. It sounds Let's ridiculous. Go. I know Migos repeat words all the time. Yeah. But do you know why they don't care? Because it's the rhythm. Yeah. It's the rhythm that matters. It's not the re the repetition. If you've got rhythm, you can repeat a word five times in the same paragraph as mm. long as it has rhythm. Then that's the key. So if you establish rhythm, then you're laughing. You can do whatever you like with words. That's what's up. Okay. And that was just a, a nerd no, 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 question. I love, love the, no, no, no. Always ask, ask the nerd questions. Yeah. So here we go. Quick fire. Are you ready, Musa? 10 questions. Uh, yeah. Go for it. A country you haven't been to that you would like to? Chile. Okay. And if you want to give why, you can give me like a paragraph on why. Listen, I have my reasons. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> Is that intriguing enough for you? <laughs> uh, the the last good documentary you watched. Oh, uh, Chernobyl doesn't count as a documentary, does it? The HBO it doesn't really count as no. a document documentary. Um, oh, gosh. Um, Oh, do you know what? Pass. I haven't watched a documentary in a while. I've not watched one for absolutely ages. Okay. It's always been films or series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, but then, well, okay, yeah. then, 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 then we can go for film, and I can lump in question four, which is favorite TV show. So, movie, TV show. It doesn't have to be a doc. Ah, uh, probably The Wire. Still. The okay, okay. Yeah, The Wire. The wire. Uh, yeah, The Wire. Currently, it's The Bear. It's The Bear currently, but historically, the bear. It's the wire. Oh my God! Am I? You're not seeing this. It's about um, a guy who's basically a guy's brother, his older brother dies, mm -hmm. and then he has to take over his um, his restaurant in Chicago, his failing restaurant. And the guy that takes over is like a world class chef, and he goes like he goes home to this tiny like restaurant in Chicago, like, and has to make it the best that he can. Yeah, it's amazing. What does that have to do with beers? All becomes clear. All becomes. Yeah, clear. Okay. Unironically, next question: If you could be one animal for a day, which oh animal God. would you be? A condor. A condor. A condor. a condor oh my god a condor there's a condor they live in the they live in the cliffs overlooking the ocean and they fly out to the ocean they only take the food they need condors only take the food they need mm -hmm. and they fly out and they basically can stay they can stay aloft for like ages on just the air vents so a condor only takes what they need to eat doesn't doesn't eat excess and they get the best view and they get to mind their own business it's basically like giving the, the entire world a mute button because you're up there in the sky and no one can get to you. <laughs> See, my answer is like an eagle. So like a you condor. get to fly. Yeah. So yeah, they, get, we... they, get, they get in too many fights, they're eagles. They get too many fights. <laughs> it's only a day. It's only a day. I could be calm for a day. Listen, a day's a, day a long time. It's a long time. <laughs> your, your favorite skill move, either to observe or to do. Oh my goodness. Oh. We're dancing around, Musa. No, the, no, the old, no, no, no. It's a great question. Do you know what? I'm, I'm, the reason I love the question is because the older I get, the more I love simplicity. I think it's the Iniesta croquetta, the left-right dribble, the Brian Laudrup. I think it's that one, you know, because you know what it is? It's because it's the one move that actually I look at it and I can't work out how it keeps working, but it does. So it must be so devastating in real time 
that it's impossible. It's basically a crossover, isn't it? It's basically mm. Kevin Durant crossover of of like football. Yeah. You know who's really good at that? Benzema. Benzema is amazing at the shit. He has about three or four things that he's really good at. He's a weird. (laughs) He's the closest thing I can think of. He's the closest footballer, I would say, to a construction construction worker. Like, he's really blue collar. He's really weird, Benzema, because he's very elegant technically, but he also doesn't care how it looks. So he wears that, like, you know, that wrist support thing. Like, he's, like, got an injury, like a permanent. Does that make sense? Yeah. Benzema yeah. is yeah, yeah, it's an extremely interesting footballer. Yeah, and anyway, carry on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. okay. Your house is on fire. Knock on wood. Yeah. You can run in and grab three items of importance to you. Yes. Which three things are you grabbing? There's no people or cats inside. No, no, already I'm already I'm already answering it. My dad's passport, my own passport, because my dad died and I was very young, so I keep his passport. It's my most treasured possession of his. Mm. My dad's passport, first of all then my passport, and then my German ID card. <laughs> Everything else from birth. Question number six, and I love this hmm. question. The time football made you the most sad? Oh, like heartbroken on a personal, despondent... Um, However you feel like defining sadness. Sad in a superficial level was mm-hmm. um, getting knocked out of the, I think, 1990 World Cup on penalties to uh, West Germany. England mm-hmm. and I would say uh the saddest that made me on a human level was uh there was a guy called Morosini. Morosini played for I think Pescara right and he was like this um amazing he was meant to be an amazing man his parents had both died and he was a teenager and then his he was supporting his sister who was um who had like a, a disability and his brother had died as well and then he dropped dead during a football oh, match no. Yeah, and he was beloved, and like he was so beloved that when um, he was so beloved that when he died, like people that had known him collapsed because like everyone knew him. I think he played for like Italy, like under twenty ones or something. So like everyone knew him, right? He was like knowing those guys, like everyone just knows them, lovely guys. Mm-hmm. And he was so beloved, and then he and then he dies, and it basically they cancelled. I think they cancelled Serie A or Serie B for like weekend because everyone this was is recently or like 90s uh, this is like 20, 2012 2012 oh, wow. and he was like an amazing human and that made me really i think that was sad because it was like it reminded me what a community football is and how these players will know each other so on a human level i think it was morosini actually um and, yeah and this is why amazing. the next question is to liven the mood of it um the time football made you the most happy oh my goodness without question the treble yeah <laughs> 1999, United win the treble. They beat Bayern Munich. The first goal, I was at uni. It was my first, I was, the first goal they scored, the equaliser. Everyone hugs everyone. There's like 30 people in a room that's only meant, it's only safe for like 10, but everyone's packed up the room to watch this game on this tiny TV. And when Solskjaer scores the winner, I jumped out of the first floor window at uni and ran around the yard screaming. What? Yeah, I didn't get back. Yeah, it was the the first floor window was basically like, I don't know how many feet off the ground it was. It was maybe like, no, six to eight, maybe, yeah, maybe eight feet, maybe. Yeah, I jumped out the first floor window, but this is a thing that's happened. I ran around the yard. But I had a good, I had hops back in the day. I had, had a had a good, good cushioning, good cushioning, good firm, firm glutes to absorb the blow of the concrete. Um, you know, I, there, there was, yeah. there's been no conversation here about basketball and I apologize, but next time. Um, yeah, the, don't worry, don't worry, all good. The time football made you the most angry or mad. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I laugh about it now, but actually, I think it was probably the Suarez handball against Ghana. 
because I know why he did it, but at the time <laughs> I was just like the rage. Because he was, look, he look, was we right, would he was all right do that. Him. We would all do that. Like, but it's just right it had to be him. It had to be him. It had to be Ghana. Even though Ghana were missing SEM, they still managed to get to that point of the World Cup. Mm -hmm. And it was like, and like, you know, there he was just popping up. And he was in his he was in his supervillain phase mm. of that. He was like, yeah, he was Suarez. He bit someone at Ajax, probably. And then he had or, the other or, stuff or, with Evra. Or, or he was still to do that, yeah. He was the last guy. He was the last guy anybody wanted to see popping we up on the scene. That was 2010. And all the other things in the Premier League hadn't happened yet because he bought by Liverpool, what, winter 11? He hadn't done, he, he hadn't done the uh, everything. I mean, he hadn't had even that. got to the villain. He, that yeah, was just like his origin story. Even, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was the first time he became known to us. Bro, I was yeah, so yeah. mad, bro. Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. All right, last last one, or you know, penultimate one. We we are creating Musa Fest, so this is going to be a three day festival, and I need a headline act for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And you get at dead or alive, you get to bring people back if you want, or they could be alive. So who are the three headliners from Musa Fest? Oh my God! Okay, headliner first night, Outcast. <laughs> Oh, oh and, and 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 what which era? So which outcast are we getting? Oh, oh, Aquemini outcast. Oh, let's go. Claps. Aquemini outcast first. Yes. Up. Okay. Vespertine era, Bjork. Then closer, Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. Mm. Compare David Bowie. Berlin era David Bowie is the MC throughout. Throughout. I was gonna say, other than Bowie, we could make that happen. Quincy Jones is on sound. <laughs> sound engineer Quincy Jones. That's how it's got to be. Yeah, absolutely. So you're going songs in the key of life over like inner visions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Musa. I mean, it's look, it's it's Musa Fest. Far be have to guests. I'm going to have guests. So guests are because here's the thing about Stevie, right? It's mm -hmm. a bit of a cheat. You know why? Because actually, people respect those artists so much that people will be queuing up to be guests. Guests queuing up. Oh, for like sure. if you had Outcast. You would get Tom York playing piano. What? You would get yeah. You would you get like Herbie Hancock doing musical director for Outcast doing a live. If Outcast are doing like a Quemini era Outcast, that means you bring in the whole jazz tradition, and you've got like Miles Davis, you've got like Lonnie Liston Smith, you've got like Idris Muhammad on drums, you've got everything. That's what I'm saying. So you actually, the musical director is Herbie Hancock for Outcast, a Quemini. So when I when we announce the headliners, we announce the credits. We don't we announce each headliner one by one, right? Mm -hmm. And then we announce them like movie credits, like you know, artistic director is. This is so detailed, bro. That's the level. Those are the levels. I'm still not over Tom York on piano for Outcasts. Like how 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 did they meet? That's the thing. It's so sick because don't forget he listened to Doom. He worked with Doom, right? So okay. he had his ear all over the scene. Like Tom York loves, he loves hip hop. So I mean, my, loves... my answer, or like or what my stock answers it, in Rainbow's Radiohead has to be there. So that's whichever day you want to pick. But I love see, that album. But see, it's funny because I didn't put Radiohead in there because I thought the Outcast you'd have collabos with Radiohead. <laughs> so you'd, bring, you'd, bring, you'd bring Tom York on because what a uh, statement to bring Tom York cheating. into. The... Yeah. Oh no no, right. no 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 no! Listen, it's my festival. He's not cheating. It's my festival. Yeah, exactly. Oh, headliner, as if as if they can't be acts on the bill. You see it. You see the. Yeah, difference. I got you. I got you. Okay. Uh, last question: Is there anything people should know that's coming, or what you got out? Maybe the Stadio podcast. Plug what you will. 
I am co-host of the Stadio Football Podcast on Ringer FC with the great Ryan Hun. I'm a frequent guest on Wrighty's House on the Ring FC with Ian Wright, the great Ian mm-hmm. Wright, and the great Carl Anker of this parish. Um, <laughs> that's what I've got out at the moment. I've got um, some books out uh, about different things. It depends on what people like. But there's uh, there's other things. That there's a book called Striking Out, which is a book about... It's a children's book about football, but really it's not about football. It's a bit of a Trojan horse. It's about social financial inequality. It's about how you escape from cycles of domestic emotional abuse and all the rest of it. So that's what it's really about. And then I've got a book um, about Berlin called In the End, It Was All About Love, uh, which I'm very proud of. Um, mm. So yeah, those are the main things I'm working on. The stuff well, the stuff, well, the stuff that I'm working on, I can't really talk about because I've got to get that out there first. But, um, mm. but yeah. Yeah, so the, all the links to Musa will be in the description. All right, so Musa, I, I thank you for coming on. I think I respected the clock. It's minute past, so we appreciate it. I don't know who we're going to be talking with next time, but we'll be talking with someone. So we thank you and peace out, guys. Thank you so much. Sports Social Podcast Network.